All right. So today we are kicking off our series on Summer of Psalms, or as I am jokingly calling it in my head, the Summer of Psalms, because that. Um, so Psalms might be one of the most commonly read books in all of the Bible. It is sometimes included in New Testament books. I don't remember those, like, I believe they were Gideon, those little old Bibles you had that were like, New Testament and Psalms. It was always like, it was included in a lot of, you know, those New Testament only versions. And I think because it, it, it was included in there because it's had a special place within the canon for a really long time. Uh, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it the prayer book of the Bible. And Martin Luther went as far as to say that it really summed up the biblical message more than any other book. He said of the book, quote, that it might as well be called a little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible, so that anyone who could not read the whole Bible would have, would have anyway almost an entire summary of it comprised in this one little book. Now, the book itself is a collection of poems, hymns, songs, and prayers uh, coming from different poets, living in different time periods, and really in different places, both like geographic places and kind of emotional like places, you know, places on their journey of life. And while each one of these psalms by themselves stands on its own as a powerful reflection of God and the human experience, it's really how the entire collection comes together that really gives us this amazing kaleidoscope of the human condition and how we as humans can interact with God through any stage or process in our lives. The collection as a whole is sometimes referred to as the Psalter. Um, so I will probably use those two terms interchangeably, Psalms and Psalter. They're basically, they, they mean the same thing. You know, Psalms comes from a Greek word and Psalter comes from a Latin word. There, there's subtle differences, but for us, think of them as the same thing. Now, the book as a whole has an introduction. Psalms 1 and 2 really acts as the foreword for the entire collection. You might think of it as the foreword to a book because that's what it is. Uh, the last five psalms of the entire collection, Psalms 146 to 150, really act as an extended doxology or an extended epilogue, as you were, for the entire book as a whole. Within the book, within the big collection, it's actually broken up into five smaller books. And each one of these smaller books has its own introduction, as it were, and its own very clear kind of benediction end to it. And even within these smaller books, there's even smaller collections of psalms. So psalms is often, you know, referred to as it's a collection of psalms. And that's true, but I think it might be more accurate to say that it, it is a collection of collections of psalms. So what I mean by that is you have kind of little groups of psalms that are kind of known together, known to exist together, to kind of be their own thing, and they kind of gotten ported into this larger book we have wholesale. Perhaps one of the best known examples of this is what are known as the Songs of Ascent. So these are Psalms 120 to 135, 134, excuse me. These were songs that, that would be sung as people would go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was up on a hill, up on the hilly region, so you, it, you would literally be ascending up into Jerusalem. 
and these songs would be sung as you went to Jerusalem to attend yearly festivals. Now it's not an exact metaphor, but you can maybe think of them in the same vein as we do Christmas hymns today. They were songs sung at a special time of year associated with a specific holiday or with special holidays. So there's that. Now the Psalms themselves come in a wide variety. Some of them are what are called laments, which are basically people crying out in fear and even anger against God. Some of them are praise hymns. They offer kind of general adoration to God as creator and also as redeemer. Others are thanksgiving hymns or psalms. And these offer up stories of hardships and then show how God helped the poet overcome these hardships. Others are royal in nature. These psalms are associated with specific events in the lives of David or Solomon. They're either inspired by these events, dedicated back to these events, make reference to them, something, but they're associated with specific events, specific times. And there's others that are simply just known as wisdom songs. They offer kind of poetic advice and encouragement to their listeners. I hope just from this, what, three, four minute introduction that it really is clear that the book of Psalms is really dynamic. And while I think it's true, you can call it the song book of the Bible, I think that might be actually underselling it a little bit. These Psalms are so much more than just simple songs. They really do encapsulate the power, the mercy, the grace, the righteousness, the forgiveness, and even sometimes the anger of God, maybe more than any other single book. And I'm really excited to dive into them with you. So if we're going to dive into them, I thought, what better place to start than right at the beginning with Psalm 1. So why don't we read Psalm 1 together? It's only like six verses, so we'll just read the whole thing. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on the law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff that is that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. As we mentioned just a minute ago, Psalms 1, this first chapter, this first psalm, acts as part of the introduction to the entire Psalter. Therefore, it, you know, it's really kind of a preamble of everything that is to follow. As such, it sets up a kind of basic choice. How are we going to live? And it does this by creating a kind of simplistic world with an easy order, an order of righteousness and an order of evil. Evil, or evil's on the side, sorry, evil, <laughs> uh, where, the, where evil becomes barren and they wither away and the righteous are fruitful. Now, I really love how just impactful verse one is at setting up the journey of the wicked. 
Notice the verbs that are used in verse 1. So at first, we are only walking with the wicked. We're not wicked ourselves. And who knows, we might even be walking along the path of righteousness. There's some discussion kind of in the theologic realms about this, but I tend to read this as we're walking at the beginning of the psalm down the path of righteousness. But this doesn't take long for our new walking companions to slow our progress. Soon, we're standing in the way that sinners take. We've stopped moving. We've stopped advancing down this path of righteousness. But we're still on our feet. So it should be easy for us to get going again, right? Right? So let's, let's read on and see what happens. Oh, no. Next, we're sitting. We're sitting in the company of mockers. Now we're not walking on the path. We're not even standing on it. Our chances of resuming, of getting up and going, have just become categorically smaller. Maybe you can think of it in terms of like a really hard workout. You know, while you're up, while you're moving, you're getting stuff done, it feels good, you're burning calories, you're like, yeah, yeah, this, this, is, this is great. You, when you get tired, you might take a quick rest. Maybe you're doing intervals or so. So you have, you know, 30 seconds, a minute to catch your breath, do a quick rest, you know, maybe put your hands on your knees. Or if you had my coach, you weren't allowed to do that. You had to put your hands on your head, but you don't go to the ground. Done with me, I knew if I laid down, I wasn't getting up. Workout was over. There was no chance I was getting back up and restarting. That's kind of what we have going on here. This opening verse is showing just how slippery of a slope sin and evil can be. It shows how fast we can go from walking down the path of righteousness to sitting next to it, mocking those who are actively on it. So that's kind of the path or the way of evil and sin. So what should be the path we take? What should we do? Well, verse 2 has that answer for us. Now, it's here I should pause and remind everyone that, for the most part, these psalms are poetry. So if you remember what you learned about poems when you were in school, poetry tends to have its own language, which it's with its own kind of little quirks. Hebrew poetry is much the same way. And one of the most common Hebrew poetry tropes, quirks, devices, whatever you want to call it, is something called parallelism or mirroring. The idea being that something or a series of somethings is stated, and then it is restated in some way right afterwards. It could be restated in exactly the same way, kind of cueing the hearer into a, a repetitive nature, or it could be intensified or explained further in some way with the intent of kind of driving home a hard point. Or, like we have here, it could be reversed or mirrored, showing an alternative path. So, verse two. in verse 2, our alternative path is, instead of walking in step with the wicked, verse 2 says we should delight in the law of the Lord. Instead of standing in the way that sinners take, we should meditate on the law day and night. So this sets up the idea that rather than getting ideas, notions in our head planted from walking with the wicked, we should be delighting in the ideas of the Lord. Rather 
then stopping, meditating, and letting those ideas of the wicked mature and dwell in us, we should be letting those ideas of scripture dwell and mature in us. And if we can do that, then rather than being planted in the company of mockers, sitting off to the side, we'll be planted in this will be planted by the stream of water. The perfect place for us to grow and to thrive. Now, notice the mockers, the mockers that are sitting on the path. They seem to be getting their sense of pride, their sense of worth from tearing others down. Now, we don't, you know, not a lot is described about them, but they are literally introduced to us as the mockers. So I think that that, that tells you a lot about this group right there. That their sense of worth is tied to how effectively they can bring someone else down. But look at the group that is planted by the stream. That group is becoming fruitful merely by existing. Simply by being in this location, by the stream, they're thriving. And whatever they do prospers. Their prosperity isn't based on their own strength, their own merit, or their own cunning. It's based on the mere grace and mercy of God. Now, eventually, these feelings of pride and self-worth that the mockers think that they're feeling, think they're achieving, will ultimately prove themselves to be false. And verse 4, this is where this comes in. In verse 4, the mockers are compared to chaff in the wind. Now, for those of you who are not fully, you know, up to date on your 9th, 10th, 11th century BCE agricultural terms, what is going on here? So, chaff is basically the unusable parts of crops. We as humans can't digest them. Some animals can, but that, that doesn't play into this analogy here. For us as humans, they're worthless. So, they need to be separated from the good, usable, tasty parts of plants, from the good parts of crops. Now, around the time that the psalm was written, the process for separating chaff from the good parts from the wheat involved going up to a high elevation, whether it was a hill. Um, sometimes we're, there, there's stories we hear of them being done on rooftops, and they would have a kind of bowl, a basket, something, and you'd be flip it up into the air, continually flip it, the idea being that the chaff would blow away in the wind because the chaff has no real weight to it. It's the good grains that have weight that'll come back down, be collected in the basket. The chaff gets completely blown away by the wind. And this is what the poem is saying about the wicked and the sinners, that they have no real spiritual weight. They might feel like they're thriving. They might feel like they're being fruitful, but that fruit is ultimately weightless. As soon as a wind comes along, they're going to be blown away. As soon as life throws any hardship at them, they're going to be blown away. All the feelings that they think they're developing, that they think they've created for themselves, are going to be gone. They're going to be blown away, leaving only an empty shell that is ultimately unusable. So I... I just really love how this psalm kind of sets up this world and really sets up the rest of the book, the rest of the Psalter, the rest of Psalms. And it does this by asking just a simple question. How are we going to live? Or maybe more specifically, 
who are we going to listen to? On the one hand, we have the ones who are determined to rule the world, the sinners, the mockers, that. On the other hand, we have the one who created the world. And this is really the most basic decision about living. And the poet lays out this choice in such a way that we as the listeners will choose to live that life of communion with God and a life enveloped in God's word. So that those wonderful gifts of God that are ripe with fruitful possibilities, those might be ours. And those aren't weightless. Those have weight. That is how we will develop and thrive. But that other side is a tempting, slippery path. We are so often drawn to self-reliance and self-depravity that ultimately divorces us from God. For example, in 1835, the French political scientist Alex de Torqueville studied how Americans lived. And he concluded that, quote, each citizen is habitually engaged in the contemplation of a very puny object. And no, he's not talking about Bruce Banner there. He's talking about the individual. We ourselves. He concluded that people, Americans, were so wrapped up in themselves, they were losing out on everything else. That was almost 200 years ago. I kind of think it's safe to say that that mindset is continued and probably intensified. So maybe one of the most appropriate ways for us to read or understand Psalm 1 is to frame it as the basic decision of whether life comes down to self-determination, self-reliance, and depending wholly on me, or in truly embracing God's instruction and God's love. Because I don't think those two can coexist. Our primary goal can either be ourselves and self-improvement, or it can be God in furthering the kingdom of heaven. Now, the wonderful thing is that listening to God will more often than not set us up for personal growth and personal development and thriving. But remember, that shouldn't be our main goal. Our main goal should be how can we bring the kingdom of God here today, even in some little way. And I think that's what the poet is trying to get across to us. That's what the poet is trying to remind us to do, to embrace the words of God and to live in fellowship with God. So Psalm 1 is really an invitation. It's inviting us to continue down the path of righteousness, a path that will inevitably be filled with just about every kind of experience and emotion we could feasibly have. And so, if we're going to go down this path, we should have a guidebook. And we should invest in a book that reflects just about every experience from poets who, are, who have gone through just about every emotion possible. And that's just what we have before us in the book of Psalms. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to journey down this path together, reflecting, reading, getting into the minds of people who have gone down this path before us. We're going to see how they handle different situations 
how they handle highs, how they handle lows. And we're just going to reflect on what that can teach us, what that can tell us today. And the amazing thing is, it's always rooted in Scripture. It all comes back to that relationship, that communion, that fellowship with God. I'm really looking forward to continuing and kind of going down this journey with you all. I really think this is going to be a time of wonderful, fruitful growth and of genuine thriving. So I'm really excited to continue this with you next week. Join me as we pray. Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful opportunity, this wonderful desire we have to be with you, to just sit and be with you, Lord. And we thank you for the book of Psalms, for the wonderful collection that it is, for the glimpses into your heart, into your mind, and into the heart and minds of people who loved you generations, thousands of years before us. So Lord, we ask that as we just continue to go throughout this week, that you would go with us, that we wouldn't be tempted by that slippery slope that sees us go from walking to standing to sitting. But that we would just stay true, stay moving toward you. That we could dwell in your love, in your grace, in your goodness, day and night, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity. Thank you for your wonderful grace. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.